All right, so welcome back, everybody. Uh, it's been a long day, yeah? Yeah, yeah. So we have, we're on the final lap here. And um, <clears throat> we're going to deal with a very sensitive issue, a very important issue, something that's happening in our, in our world today. I'm going to talk, give a brief history of the sexual revolution. <coughs> so um, I talk about this because God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should have eternal life. And that should be our approach and our philosophy to however we talk about these issues. Because we're going to talk about something that's really the most intimate and personal detail in somebody's life. You know, how you identify. Now, we may talk about what it means to identify. But your sense of who you are is incredibly important. And for someone to say to you, you are not who you say you are, can be profoundly insulting. So we're going to talk about the history of the sexual revolution I'm not going to talk about the origins of certain things. I'm going to give a broad overview of what's been happening in America. Uh, then I'm going to talk about um, the comparison between the competing worldviews that are out there and the consequences that we're looking at in America today. Let's let bow our heads and ask God for his blessing. <clears throat> our dear loving Heavenly Father, we ask for a spirit of wisdom to descend upon us today. Father, you've told us through the epistle of the Apostle James that the wisdom that comes from above is peaceful and gentle and makes for building up. So, Father, I pray for that spirit of wisdom now. I pray, Lord, that those who are hearing this today, those who may be watching today online or later from the archives, I pray that they will sense your presence in what is said and done today. May we never look on others, Father, as if our salvation is based on our own goodness and theirs is based on their own worthlessness. May we remember that we are all sinners in need of a sin-bearing Savior. So, Father, bless us now with your presence. In Jesus' name I ask. Amen. All right, so <clears throat> we're going to talk about some American history here. Some of this you may be familiar with this. Probably most of it you don't know, but you may have picked up somewhere in the news. Um, in the 1940s, we can start there. There's a very famous doctor down in Nebraska called Dr. Arthur Lewis Miller. And he argued that uh, a homosexual had urges about once a month in the same way that a woman had a menstrual cycle. That was his idea about homosexuality. He argued that three to four days in each month, the homosexual's instinct, that is for moral decency, breaks down and he's driven into abnormal fields of sexual practice. And what he recommended was large doses of sedatives uh, to kind of calm people's urges during those, during those critical moments of the month. It's hard to believe, but that's what was argued. In the 1940s, he then argued he was voted to Congress from Nebraska, and he authored what was known as the Sexual Psychopath Law, but in, in, in common parlance, it became known as the Miller Act. It made the act of sodomy punishable by up to 20 years in prison, and anyone accused of it had to be examined by a psychiatric team. And repeated acts of this and led to a diagnosis as a sexual psychopath, and you would not be put to prison, but you were going to be committed to the criminal ward of Washington, D.C.'s St. Elizabeth Psychiatric Hospital until you were sufficiently recovered, and President Truman signed the Miller Act into law in 1948. After that, in the 1940s, or parallel to that, it would be fair to say that homosexuals were the, on the receiving end of incredible bigotry, hatred, and violence. Police departments nationwide hunted for homosexuals in bars, clubs, and other gay meeting places, particularly here in California. 
In fact, the California Department of Alcohol Beverage Control, the ABC, do you still have the ABC here? <clears throat> All right, the ABC was created to maintain public safety in establishments that served alcohol, and other establishments were then closed if they broke the alcohol laws or they became known as gay meeting spots. And homosexuals were captured in sting operations by the police in gay bars, and police officers posing as homosexuals, and, um, and then arresting people who came up to them and propositioned them. Homosexuals were referred to as perverts and psychopaths, and there was very significant public hostility to homosexuals. Now, in the 1950s, we come to the American Psychiatric Association, their Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. They classified homosexuality as a pathological disorder. And in popular literature, it was viewed and portrayed that homosexuality was the result of some psychosocial maladjustment in your preteen years. A popular perception held that um, homosexuality could be cured through psychoanalysis, residential group therapy, um, frontal lobotomies, insulin shock or electroconvulsive therapy, electroshock therapy. And many wealthy parents paid for their children to go precisely these kind of treatments in places like New York, Washington and California. That's what parents put their children through, hoping that they could be cured of homosexuality. Now, President Truman in 45, signed Executive Order 9835, known as the Federal Employment Loyalty Program, which established review boards to work within the federal agencies to identify and fire any individual suspects of disloyalty to the US. At the time, America was entering the Cold War with the Soviet Union, and President Truman and Eisenhower after him were trying to make sure that there were no reds under the bed, as you might say, with Senator McCarthy, that there was the, the reds under the bed scare and homosexuals were viewed as being susceptible to blackmail, that if you are known to be a homosexual, lose your job, therefore we can blackmail you from the KGB. And so Truman needed to show himself tough on, tough on communists and to be a true Cold War warrior, so he signed, he signed that particular executive order into power. And with his blessing, a guy called John Purfoy, Purfoy began rooting out homosexuals within the State Department using the powers provided by that particular executive order. And um, the State Department was viewed as a hotbed of homosexual and gay activity and as a liability to the United States in the Cold War against the former Soviet Union. So um, he then, uh, homosexuals, as I say, were viewed as morally deviant, uh, open to blackmail by foreign powers, namely the USSR. They were believed to weaken your moral fiber, and they were alleged to have a corrosive impact on their non-homosexual work colleagues. And so the U.S. Senate decided that the executive branch of the U.S. government must be purged of all homosexuals in the 50s. A Senate subcommittee was formed, led by Clyde Hoey, senator from North Carolina, and by November 1950, over 500 federal employees across the states had either been fired or forced to resign. So there was a lot of purging going on in the, uh, the upper levels of the U.S. federal government. A parallel to that, Dwight Eisenhower, within three months of coming to office, signed another executive order, Order 10450, naming certain categories of people as being security risks. And can we maybe switch this microphone off and keep this on? A lot of, I'm hearing a lot of feedback here. Thank you. Uh, among those security risks were communists, morally subversive, the drunks, the dishonest, the drug users, and sexual perverts, i.e. homosexuals. And under Eisenhower's administration, there was a concerted effort to purge homosexuals from all federal positions because they were alleged to be a security risk vis-a-vis -vis the Soviet Union. 
and have a morally corrosive effect on their colleagues. And because of this, tens of thousands of um, patriotic Americans who were homosexuals were purged from their jobs in the federal government across the United States under the allegation that they might be subject to blackmail by the KGB and other overseas agencies. Intrusive investigations were conducted that destroyed the careers of many Americans and private corporations engaged in the same winnowing out process. It seems like today we're going through exactly the same process on another issue. But anyway, in the US Navy, FDR, when he was the Assistant Secretary of the Navy before he became the President, um, he had assigned investigators to invest like NCIS, alleged um, homosexual acts on the parts of his sailors. And the 1920 Articles of War, which are the Military Code of Conduct, they had criminalized homosexual behavior in the US military. This was in force until early World War II, when because of manpower shortages, the US government relaxed their restrictions on um, active homosexuals serving in the military. War Department Circular 3, I think in 42, alleged that some homosexuals could be reclaimed from their homosexuality, but only the resolutely homosexual were to be discharged with, an, with a dishonorable discharge. Uh, but by 1944, homosexuals still faced intrusive psychiatric investigation when they entered the US military, despite the labor or manpower shortages as World War II played out. After World War II, the US military shank, shrank, shrank by 90%, and once again, homosexuals were aggressively rooted out in favor of heterosexuals serving in the military. An Army Regulation 600-443 described three kinds of homosexual. The aggressively homosexual were to be court-martialed, that is, the flagrant homosexuals. The non-aggressive homosexuals could resign or be, be dishonorably discharged, and those with homosexual tendencies could receive a dishonor an honorable discharge. And discharges dropped during the Korean War due to manpower shortages again, but they soared, soared afterwards from 1953 onwards. So basically, the U.S. military's position was, if we're fighting a big war, we need you. If we don't have a war on our hands, you can go home. That's kind of the summary of the attitude of the U.S. military in the 40s and 50s. Uh, when it came to women, uh, America in the 50s, uh, America, the American ideal for women was motherhood, apple pie, and white picket fences. And there were not a lot of career opportunities for women in the United States, particularly in the 1950s. This led parallel to this to the uh, development of what we know as second wave feminism, but we're not going to talk about that today. So anyway, in the 1950s, um, lesbians were attracted to the military. Why? Because in the military, you didn't need to have a husband to support you. You could earn a salary with benefits and earn the GI Bill benefits for yourself as well. So for a woman who did not want to marry a man, the US military provided a very good option to further yourself in life and to be able to support yourself. And it's believed now that there were many discreet lesbians who served in the various branches of the US military uh, throughout the 1950s. And so be neat and discreet was a common, common motto among lesbians at the time. Now, um, we move on to start the, the starting of the early gay rights movement. And uh, Magnus Hirschfeld was in Germany, and uh, he organized the Scientific Humanitarian Committee in Germany in 1897. His focus was on decriminalizing homosexuality. Um, there's a parallel talk I give, but Magnus Hirschfeld, is, he was an active homosexual. He lived with two young men in France. Um, his library was burnt to the ground by Joseph Goebbels in 1933 in Germany uh, by the Nazis, and he fled to France. He lived with two young men, a German man and a China, Chinese man, a man from China, and uh, he was kind of one of the founders of, you might say, the modern transgender ideology, but he himself lived with two young men at the time there. 
parallel to him in 1924, we're not going to go down the transgender route today, but uh, Henry Gerber in 1924, he opened up the Society for Human Rights here in the States and he was closed down. The Veterans Benevolent Association fought the dishonorable discharges that homosexuals received so they could receive an honorable discharge and receive GI benefit bills. Harry Hay here in California believed that homosexuals were an oppressed cultural minority within a culturally Marxist worldview. This is uh, very, this is you know, the Frankfurt School of Philosophy and the origins of social justice warrior ideology, where the hard left has repositioned the debate. Marx said that the world is divided into the proletariat to the bottom, the workers, and the bourgeoisie, the owners of the factories. And there's an economic struggle going on, and the left under the um, the Frankfurt School of Philosophy reimagined that in America and said, no, the world is divided into the oppressors and the oppressed. And you are either an oppressor or the oppressed. And we're all familiar with that kind of ideology today. Critical race theory, critical theory, all that kind of stuff. We're not going to go into that today. We could, but we won't. But Harry Hay was using that kind of Marxist worldview to argue that homosexuals were an oppressed cultural minority within the United States. And he organized an organization called Matashina here in California, I think it was. And they fought against um, entrapment by the police. And they also um, fought for homosexuals to have um, basic civil rights within the United States. In April 1953, there was a convention, I think it was in San Francisco, of the Matashine Movement. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. And there was a convention, and there was fears over a Marxist and secretive approach to leadership, which, well, there was. And this was the first time in U.S. history, it was in the Bay Area, that a public hall of, of homosexuals spoke openly for political purposes. They spoke of their pride in their homosexuality, and they anticipated walking down Hollywood Boulevard arm-in-arm proclaiming their, their pride. And Marilyn Riga, one of the speakers, spoke of the need of homosexuals to come out into the open. That was in 1953. Now, parallel to this, you have the Daughters of Bilitis. This was a lesbian rights group formed in 1955 to help adjust, lesbians adjust to and prosper and, and uh, advance within U.S. society. Now, they produced a magazine called The Ladder, the DOB Ladder, uh, they sought to, produce, to raise the public profile of lesbians in across America. So they would profile well-known women who were lesbians and put them on the front of their magazine. Uh, they also wanted to roll back vague lewd laws and anti-homosexuality laws. Vagrancy lewd, law, lewd laws were used by the police to entrap people, uh, often in, in public toilets and so forth, and they were used in sting operations. They wanted to roll back those laws. And now the Ladder um, magazine... It started as of the Matashine movement to focus on the human and the civil rights of lesbians, not on the kind of like um, relational issues. So by 1964, um, the early gay rights movement has shifted its focus to the question of the church. And in 1964, there was an ongoing dialogue held between liberal Protestant pastors and gay rights activists, again in the Bay Area. Now, out of that dialogue um, was established what became known as the Council on Religion and the Homosexual. And that was intended to be a meeting place where members of the homosexual community and the liberal churches could meet for an honest dialogue about what was going on within that particular community. And the homosexual community uh, challenged the pastors. They said, if you're standing up for the African-American community in the civil rights movement with uh, Martin Luther King Jr., then why aren't you standing up for the civil rights of another oppressed minority known as the homosexuals? And so they argued in these meetings that love is the ultimate and only norm of conduct. That is, um, that sounds great, but from a biblical perspective, 
um, love is important, but there, there are boundaries within love from a biblical perspective. But this was, the love was to be the ultimate and only norm of conduct. Nothing was to modify what you called love. So the council held a Mardi Gras ball in 1965, and it was kind of a setup, but um, they invited a lot of prominent um, gay rights activists to that, and the police chief decided to raid it, and this was in the full view of the, of the press of the Bay Area, and this sent shockwaves across America because the police were beating up people with their truncheons, dragging them off in their cars, and putting them in their cells. And there was a big public outcry about it because the, the pastors and the homosexuals were actually meeting for actually a very civilized discussion, you might say. So people said this violence against the homosexual community is not acceptable. Now, soon after this, we have a guy called Frank Kameni, called Kameni. Oh, I've missed a slide here, have I? Oh, yes. Okay, so in the 1960s, there were many police raids on gay bars, particularly here in California. And um, instead of being met by meek submission, the inhabitants or the people in those gay bars started to fight back. They started to throw their chairs, their food, their furniture and taunts at the police. And in 1966, a young man called Steve Ginsburg started the Personal Rights in Defense and Education Organization, otherwise known as PRIDE. So the word pride, pride marchers, does not relate to I'm proud to be gay. It's, it's, it's born out of the struggle for fellow Americans to have their basic civil rights respected by the police. Okay? I'm not here speaking positively or negatively. I'm just describing as neutrally as I can. All right? So hundreds of pride supporters started marching in the Bay Area on the police stations demanding that the police leave them alone in their gay bars and the police no longer harass them, and the police no longer arrest them and abuse their civil rights and human dignity. And soon pride marches were breaking out, particularly in California, um, against the brutality of the police to the, to the homosexual community. So then we come to Frank Kameni. He was a brilliant astronomer. He is perhaps the single dominant figure in the gay rights movement in the last 50 years. He is to the gay rights movement as Martin Luther King Jr. is to the civil rights movement. If you've never heard of him, you should have. He was a brilliant astronomer um, who was actually given a dishonorable discharge from the Navy because he was homosexual, and he fought his discharge quite vigorously. And um, he started to lead a more militant gay rights movement in the D.C. area in the 1960s. He participated in the March on Washington with Martin Luther King, and um, he argued, uh, he lobbied before Congress, and he spoke passionately that, um, that homosexuals should have the same civil and legal rights as heterosexuals should have. He argued, furthermore, that homosexuals should not wait for heterosexual society to give them those rights and to affirm them, but that the gay rights movement should take those rights for themselves um, using legal means. Now, he was a tireless campaigner. He was a brilliant campaigner. I mean, he was a guy who believed in what he stood for, and he fought tooth and nail for 50 years for that. He died during President Obama's administration. Um, he was uh, supported by Barbara Gittings et al. and others. Barbara Gittings was a high-profile lesbian at the time in the D.C. area, and they worked hand-in-hand together. And uh, Kameny um, encouraged um, homosexuals who were fired by the federal um, civil service to sue um, for, to get their discharges overturned. And he litigated a number of cases with some lawyer friends, and finally there were two um, landmark decisions. There was Norton versus Macy in 69 and Scott versus Macy in 68, after which the Civil Service Commission um, stopped its policy of firing homosexuals and also of refusing to hire homosexuals. And in 73, 
the uh, commission, the Civil Service Commission, issued a, f- a federal guideline to all federal agencies allowing, uh, saying that you cannot refuse to hire somebody because they're homosexual and you cannot fire them because they're homosexual. So this was a big legal advance in the early 60s. In the late 1960s, you have the Stonewall Riots. Now, the Stonewall Riots started in June 69. There was a police raid on the Stonewall in there in, I think, New York. And uh, it, this led to a series of peaceful protests initially. But the police raids continued, and eventually it turned to violence. Now, America in the 1960s was a violent nation. We had race riots across the country. And the civil rights movement was torn between those who were saying we, we peacefully march and we overcome through dignity and an appeal to people's conscience, which was Martin Luther King's approach. And there was the more militant arm of the civil rights movement said, we're not going to wait to be given these rights as African-Americans. We're going to take them in society. And so there were, there were black, um, race riots in Britain and America. You see the New York, Watts, Cleveland, and Detroit. And uh, Leo Lawrence, he argued in the gay rights movement that the gay rights movement needed to adopt the same militancy as some of the more militant African-American groups. And so he argued that the black man found self-respect and dignity when he said, black is beautiful and I am proud. Now homosexuals started saying, gay is good and I too am proud. And so the, the gay rights movements, in a certain extent, paralleled some aspects of the civil rights movement within the United States. In the 1970s, um, we start having more direct action. Let's call it direct action. The process was known as zapping. Zapping was public confrontations. Uh, shouting in your face, turning up at your workplace, turning up at your convention, turning up at your church, wherever it may be, and talking about why aren't you respecting the civil rights and legal rights of homosexuals within your community. Now, parallel to that, uh, many lesbians, they, they, they felt that the gay rights movement was dominated by white male homosexuals, and that the needs of women, uh, lesbians, were basically kind of secondary in the gay rights movement to the needs of men in the gay rights movement. So there were some lesbian groups kind of hived off from the main gay gay rights movement. There was the Lesbian Liberation Committee and Radical Lesbians was another group. And um, Radical Lesbians called for hetero women to emulate lesbians by ceasing to be male identified but to become women identified in their heads. And you start to see the first, um, this is coming out of second wave feminism, Um, you're starting to see the first kind of hints of what we now call the modern transgender movement. Uh, Feminist lesbians in particular objected to transvestites, men who dress as women, because transvestites, men who dress as women, don't dress as like, you know, Amish women. (laughs) Men who dress as women emphasize the sexualization aspect of women. High heels, red lips, etc., etc., short skirts. And the lesbians were saying, okay, you think you're a woman, but why do you emphasize that which causes our problems in the first place, which is, you know, the, the, the sexual aspect of women? You see the point? Yeah. So there was a d- dispute. There were debates within the, the gay rights movement of the time. Um, so um, Rita Mae Brown in the African-American community, uh, sorry, and Charlotte Brown, they weren't. They led the Furies in 1970. There was a lesbian commune established in Washington, D.C., and um, they made a political choice to escape male domination, and they argued that heterosexuality fed male dominance in society. So lesbian was a conscious choice by women to rid the world of patriarchy, sexism, racism, imperialism, all to be replaced by socialism. Sounds very similar to the modern social justice warrior movement. They inspired a bunch of feminist uh, lesbian collectives across the United States. They saw homosexual socialist men as much as a problem as capitalist heterosexual men. 
And the solution was to be a feminist lesbian. That was to build an all-women world without men. And that really didn't get very far, um, for obvious reasons. Um, and just as the, the white middle-class women who were lesbians felt that their voices were not being heard because of the dominance of the white homosexual men, parallel to that, you have the African-American women in particular saying that our experience of, of, of subjugation and oppression and all the rest of it does not match that of the white lesbian women. And so the African-American lesbian community kind of had their own offshoots as well, arguing for their particular needs. Um, the, there was the Combahee River Collective was formed in 74. Some of those leaders wrote what is now known as the Combahee River Collective Statement, calling for the destruction of the political economic system of the states, of capitalism, of imperialism, and patriarchy. One of those leaders was a lady called McRae, and um, Shirley McRae, who then met a guy called Bill de Blasio. And you know Bill de Blasio? Yes, and they married in 1994. He was a supporter of the Sandinistas, the communists of Nicaragua. So that's kind of her background before she met Bill de Blasio. Now, um, parallel to this, in the 1970s, you have the first edition of the Equality Act come. In 1974, it was proposed by a guy called Ed Koch. Is that how you spell his name? Koch. Okay, sorry. I wasn't here at the time. Ed Koch. No, really, I wasn't. I was in England, or I wasn't even born then, so I can claim ignorance on that. So, Ed Koch, yes? Okay. Um, he sought in the Equality Act of 74 to, to ban discrimination on the grounds of what he euphemistically called sexual or affectional preference, thus avoiding putting the word homosexual into the Act of Congress. That 74 Equality Act never made its way out of, out of committee within the House of Representatives, but by this stage, activism was now transitioning to the decision-makers of Congress. But one important barrier still remains, and that was the psychiatric profession. So in the 1970s, there was a lot of focus on uh, why the psychiatric, profession, psychiatric profession was overwhelmingly opposed to the practice of homosexuality. Now, the American Psychiatric Association has an annual convention, and in 71, that association meeting in the D.C. area was zapped by thousands and thousands of gay rights activists descending on that hotel in D.C., and the whole thing descended into chaos. And so Kameny negotiated with the American Psychiatric um, Association and agreed that in 1972 there would be no zapping of the APA annual meeting, but there would be a public presentation and a debate. And Kameny was there together with uh, Gittings, uh, the lesbian leader, and they had a very, f uh, a very famous incident. There was a, a psychiatrist who wore that kind of, you know that white anonymous mask that hack hackers wear? He wore that. He was Dr. Anonymous. Uh, Dr. H. Anonymous, and he was a gay psychiatrist who was challenging the views of the American Psychiatric Association. So there was a debate there at the American Psychiatric Association, and their reference committee in 73 um, voted to replace homosexuality with sexual orientation disturbance in the DSM, and that's the handbook for psychiatrists. Um, they sought to keep in harmony with the time with the dominant notions of mental influence they viewed that homosexuality was not normal, it just was, it was not normal, it was just not abnormal, which is kind of like a, where is it, who knows? So debate raged in the psychiatric community about homosexuality, is it a mental illness or is it not a mental illness? Is it a disorder or not? Do we view it as a disorder because of a biblical worldview or on what basis do we argue that this is a disorder? And eventually, as a result of those internal debates within the American psychiatric community, the 74 DSM-2 eliminated all references to homosexuality. Then we come to the 80s, 
And the big story of the 80s is the gay, the, um, not the gay, the AIDS epidemic. And it first started appearing in June 81, where a physician at UCLA reported via the CDC's Morbidity Mortality Weekly Report on five young men who had appeared in hospital with a rare illness, a pneumocystitis carrying pneumonia, previously only seen in patients with acute immunosuppression. And all five young men were homosexuals, and by the time the report was published, two were already dead. And this is the start of the, the gay epidemic that hit America and the rest of the world. The New York Times reports on the new gay cancer, and it chose to emphasize not the fact that they were all young men, but it chose to emphasize the fact that they allegedly were promiscuous young men in the gay scene who had as many as 10 sexual encounters each night up to four times a week, to quote from the New York Times. Now, this was clearly an attempt to kind of smear, as everybody in that community is just morally outrageous and grossly promiscuous, and what do they think they're doing if they're having sex with 40 different men a week, something like that. So um, the age pandemic continued, but then it's, the turnaround started on the 11th of October, 87, with what was known as the Second March on Washington. Uh, there was the Martin Luther King's first march on Washington in the 60s, and the gay rights community um, activated. In 87, there was another march on Washington. Over 40,000 people who died of AIDS nationally. Uh, physical attacks on homosexuals were skyrocketing on the streets, and fear ruled the streets in some of the gay enclave parts of the United States. At that event, they hurled, unfurled a quilt along the Washington Mall. Maybe some of you remember that quilt. It covered almost the entire Washington Mall. Uh, thousands upon thousands of rectangular three-by-six panel quilt panels were made, each representing an AIDS victim. Each panel, panel had a message from a family member or from a parent who'd lost a precious son or daughter. So there was a massive increase of pressure on Big Pharma and through Congress. Uh, Big Pharma joined the battle, and in 96, uh, protease inhibitors were made widely available, and deaths from de uh, AIDS in large U.S. cities dropped about 40% um, almost overnight, and we've seen a decline uh, of ever since then. So some more modern-day advances. In 93, President Bill Clinton signed into effect the Don't Ask, Don't Tell Act, um, which essentially said, we won't ask you if you're gay in the military, and if you don't tell us that you're gay, we're not going to discharge you. But even under that um, act that was signed into place by Bill Clinton, over 14,000 people were discharged from the U.S. military. In 2009, President Obama signed what is now known as the Matthew Shepard and James Byrd Jr. Hate Crimes Prevention Act. I don't know if you know what happened to Matthew Shepard or James Byrd, but that what happened to them should happen to no human being. Let's be honest about it the most brutal physical assault possible. They were brutalized and brutally treated, and President Obama, Obama signed this Hate Crimes Prevention Act into law in 2009. And we as Christians would absolutely reject the violence and brutality that was visited, on, visited upon those two young men. Nobody can justify that under any way, shape, or form. President Obama then signed the law repealing the Don't Ask, Don't Tell Act in 2010, and then in 2014, he amended Clinton's executive order prohibiting discrimination based on gender identity to, uh, to prohibit generation based, discrimination based on gender identity for federal contractors. Uh, so LGBTQ persons could not be discriminated against by federal contractors. Those were some of the acts that President Obama did. In 2015, Obergefell versus Hodges, this was a key law a decision by the US Supreme Court. It had been, you know, the pressure had been building for 50 years for this law to be 
um, this is a decision from the U.S. Supreme Court. And in this decision, um, Justice Anthony Kennedy discovered in the 14th Amendment, the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment, a a constitutional right requiring all states to perform and recognize same-sex marriages on the same terms and conditions as heterosexual marriages. That was the Obergefell versus Hodges case in 2015. There's a lot we can say about that, but time is pressing, so we'll move on. Then we have the HR5. This is HR5 here. And this is what um, President Biden promised he'd sign in his first 100 days. Now, he hasn't, not because he, not because he didn't want to, but because he couldn't. And H.R. 5 is known as the Equality Act. It has passed the House, but it's now stuck, and it can't get through the Senate unless the... the um, what's it called? Sorry? The filibuster, thank you, brother. Yeah, the filibuster. Unless the filibuster go, if the filibuster holds, this will not be voted. If the filibuster goes, this will be voted through. Now, the Equality Act sounds great, but as you read through HR 5, it's basically a list of statements, paragraphs, um, stripping any reasons or any defenses against the full recognition of sexual orientation and gender identity as new protected classes to be added to what is already protected in the Civil Rights Act, like race, age, sexual, um, race, age, nationality, and national origin. Okay, and so the, the Equality Act clarifies in U.S. federal law for the first time that sex is separate to gender. Now, this comes after some very famous American psychiatric work in the 60s. There was a professor at UCLA who argued that your sex is below the belt, your gender is above the belt, to put it crudely. So sex is biological, gender is a social construct, as some would argue today. So the Equality Act has been passed by the House of Representatives, and it basically says that you cannot discriminate on any basis along the grounds of sexual orientation or gender identity. Um, This is significant because this is the first time in American law that we are separating gender from biology with all of the consequences that goes with it. Now, in the Infrastructure Act that is just being passed by Congress, in that they include as one of the protected classes gender identity. Okay, But that hasn't elevated it to a civil rights protected class. That needs to be included in the Equality Act. And the Equality Act hasn't been voted yet because of the filibuster, and that hasn't, the filibuster still exists. And perhaps the filibuster is the only thing stopping America dropping off a cliff. Two votes, Senator Sinema from Arizona and, and Mnookin from West Virginia. Those are two people you pray they don't have a road accident. Why is this important to us as Christians? Well, there it is there on the screen. Section 1107 says that the Religious Freedom Restoration Act shall not provide a claim concerning or a defense to a claim under a covered title, sexual orientation or gender identity, or provide a basis for challenging the application or enforcement of a covered title. Now, that's legalese for saying that um, you cannot choose who you want to work for your organization anymore. If somebody believes that they are X, Y, or Z, that's their gender identity, you cannot use that as a basis for not employing them or for not selling them something or for not providing them with a certain service. Now, this does not say lesbians, gays, and bisexuals. It is any gender identity. And gender identity is your internal sense of gender, which is entirely subjective. 
That's how Obama defined it in his Dear Colleagues letter of 2016. So if sexual orientation cannot legally be challenged or discriminated against, and the basic premise of the gay rights movement is that government cannot and should not legislate for any particular version of morality, Kameny argued that, as did A.T. Jones, that it is not the job of Congress to impose a certain worldview on the society. The job of Congress is to lift up the civil rights of all American citizens. Now, A.T. Jones argued that on the assumption that Congress still had a biblical worldview. Kameny is arguing, he's now dead, but the gay rights movement argued is that there is no moral framework. There should be no restrictions on the individual's pursuit of happiness. No restrictions. And it's the job of the American government to pursue, to uphold a society where there are no restrictions on your pursuit of happiness. So if, the, if HR 5 gets passed, and I'm not saying this to scaremonger you or anything, this is... If you read upon HR fact, HR 5, you'll read this all over the place. If, we, if HR 5 gets accepted, then we are going to have to accept and normalize not just LGBTQ, but minor attracted persons, otherwise known as pedophiles, genetic sexual attraction, otherwise known historically as incest, zoophilia, otherwise known as bestiality, necrophilia, uh, making out with dead bodies in a mortuary, multiple partner in same-family marriage, etc., etc. That's the impact of this law. It removes all restraint. It's not just LGBTQ, it's the alphabet many times over. Um, that's the impact of the Equality Act. So I'm not making this up. You can read it for yourselves. It's what the Act... You know, there's no, there is no religious defense. Well, this here means... The Religious Freedom Restoration Act codifies in, in the codified system of the U.S. legal system the First Amendment that Congress shall make no law regarding the establishment or the practice of a religion. That This means that, theoretically, if, if a, uh, a homosexual couple who are in a same-sex marriage recognized by the state of California come and apply for a job at the Southeast California Conference for him to be a pastor and the conference says no, they can be sued because the conference is turning down people who are in a same-sex marriage. If a person who is openly a minor attracted person, a pedophile, applies for the conference work as a Bible worker or as a youth worker and is turned down because they are openly a minor attracted person, you can be sued for turning them down on that basis. You understand the implications of this? We had a man wanting to serve with AFM two years ago who proclaims openly on the internet that he is a minor attracted person. He calls himself a, virtu a virtuous pedophile. That is, I have the attractions, but I don't act upon them. We said, no way. Sue us, do whatever you want. We ain't hiring you, period. But if the Equality Act gets passed, we have no defense. So you might say that the Equality Act, it goes over and beyond establishing the civil rights of those who are homosexual, and it, goes, it actually establishes civil rights for people that, um, for, for communities who have sexual attractions that almost any civilized society in human history utterly rejects as being abnormal and unhealthy, such as pedophilia, bestiality, necrophilia, or zoophilia. So what's happening with Adventism right now? I'm not going to talk about what's happening within the NED and all that kind of stuff, but what's happening to Adventism? Well, um, a couple of months ago, uh, a lawsuit was filed in federal court in Oregon just about three months ago, group of current and former LGBTQ students have sued the Department of Education 
uh, to force colleges to change their policies or to stop providing federal financial assistance. Title IX gives a religious exemption for, for, for faith-based institutions to practice their faith and still have the students receive, for instance, student loans. But these students are looking to um, have those protections of Title IX, the religious exemption, eliminated, uh, which would force um, every Christian college in America to now to actively promote the LGBTQ lifestyle. Now, if you look at the list of colleges who are listed as defendants, you'll notice something. Baylor, what religion is Baylor? Baptist. Brigham Young is? Indiana Wesleyan is? Methodist. Fuller Theological is? Non-denominational evangelical. Liberty? Evangelical. And La Sierra is? Seventh-day Adventist, you see. They're targeting one university of every major Christian denomination in America. It's named in this lawsuit to force every denomination to change its policies. And how are they doing this? They're essentially saying, we want the federal government to, the courts, to strip out the religious exemption that Congress gave many years ago for faith-based organizations so that you can no longer live out your faith on your college campus. And if you don't, then you'll lose the right for your students to get student loans. And if you lose the right for students to get student loans, what happens to your educational institution in about five minutes' time? It closes down. Thank you, brother. Yes. Well, this means that every Adventist college, if this case succeeds, every Adventist college is going to have to make a hard decision. To what extent do we allow this to go ahead? Is it better to keep the institution open and have a, a same-sex married accommodation facility somewhere? Or is it better to say, this is not what we believe and we're going to send our children to the Philippines and Kenya and Britain and Germany for education where they don't have these laws in place? It's a hard decision to make. I'm not in those committees, so I'm not going to have to make that decision. But I do know that in the NAD, approximately 80%, if not more, of our overall income is not from the members. Over 80% of our income comes from Medicaid, Medicare, and federal student loans in our hospitals and colleges. That's where most of our tithe comes from. You understand the implications of this? If we refuse to go along with this, and we lose maybe 80% of the income into the NAD, there's a massive reduction in pastors, Bible workers, conferences just evaporate. So we are coming up to the point, a moment of truth, where we have to make some hard decisions. We have to decide what do we stand for and what do we not stand for, and what is acceptable and, not, and what is not acceptable. And truly, our administrators need the wisdom of Solomon and the guidance of the Holy Spirit to know how to navigate these challenges. These lawsuits are targeted at Christian colleges, specifically. There's another lawsuit right now that I haven't put up here that's been filed against Harvard. Harvard discharged two students, one who entered into a homosexual same-sex marriage, one who entered into a lesbian same-sex marriage. Not so long ago, Harvard, no, Fuller discharged them because you have to sign a covenant that says you agree to live by certain biblical standards. And now they're being sued by that, by Harvard, uh, Fuller being sued by those students. And that case directly applies to our colleges as well. So these things are on the line right now. Um, we essentially are looking at two competing worldviews, and those worldviews are incompatible with each other. You can't coexist with these worldviews. Um, in the biblical worldview, we would agree with the sexual revolution that civil statutes define crime and deal with crime, never with sin or morality, and to break a civil law is an incivility. 
So it is not immoral to break the speed limit. That's kind of good news. It's unlawful, but it's not immoral to break the speed limit. No matter how much my wife tells me, like, you know, ease up, ease up on the expression. No, it's not immoral. Unlawful maybe, but not immoral. Divine law, on the other hand, does not deal with legal and, and unlawful. It deals with morality and immorality. And divine law defines and deals with what is sin. That is a breaking of the moral law. That's what we believe as Christians. Whereas in the sexual revolution, there is no God, there is no revealed morality, there is no divine law, and there is no final judgment. So we're coming at this question from completely different worldviews. We are universes apart. In terms of the separation of church and state, we assume as Christians that there is a separation between the church and the state, and the state should not impose the religious views of a certain group on the rest of society. That's what we promote as Adventists. In the sexual revolution, the state is supreme and alone, and there is no assumption of the church in the secular worldview of the LGBTQ movement. There is no assumption of the church. Rather, the role of the church, from a biblical perspective, we are entrusted by, the, by God with the gospel, and we are given the gifts and fruit of the Holy Spirit. Why? Not to bless ourselves, but to promote the obedience of faith, as the Apostle Paul calls it, and to guide individuals into morality. Good definition of the church, I guess. Uh, from the sexual revolution's perspective, the church is merely a social actor that should promote the civil rights of the LGBTQ community, but it does not exist to promote biblical or revealed moralities because the LGBTQ rights movement denies such a thing altogether. When it comes to moral framework, we believe as Christians that we live within and we are morally accountable to God for how we treat our brother and our sister. There is a final judgment. How I treat you, I have to answer to before my Heavenly Father. By your words and by your deeds, you shall be judged. Okay, we are accountable. And so I, the advice of Jesus to do unto others as you'd have them do unto you is the best advice you're ever going to get. Because who can come and stand before the Lord, reading the Psalms, those who have clean hands. That is, those who deal kindly and cleanly with others can expect kindness from God. Because mercy triumphs over judgment, as we read later in the writings of James. But in the sexual revolution, there is no revealed moral framework and there is no moral accountability to God. Each individual is sovereign, they're like their own God, and they seek happiness as he or she chooses. It's essentially a nihilist worldview. But there is no moral accountability, there is nothing that says anything is right or wrong. In fact, the whole concept of right or wrong makes no sense anymore. Rather, I must, the, the state must create an environment where I am free to pursue whatever avenue of happiness I seek for today with no condemnation, no criticism, no, no nothing. The state must exist to support my happiness. In terms of civil authorities and morality, well, we believe as Adventists that with the separation of church and state, the church and state should be separate and the civil authorities should not legislate for morality because the end result of morality in, of the union of mosque and state in the Muslim world is Sharia law, which we reject. And in the Catholic world, the union of church and, and cathedral is the Inquisition. That's the logical conclusion of the state imposing morality which is where we're going to get to with the mark of the beast one day. But in the sexual revolution, they also believe that civil authorities should not legislate for morality because there is no morality. But this is still happening today via cancel culture. There, still, there is still an imposition that if you don't dance to the tune of the new worldview, you are going to be cancelled. So we might argue today that in conclusion, and time is moving on, but the arguments used by the gay rights activists, such as Kameny and Gittings et al., 
uh, were very similar to those used by A.T. Jones in the 1880s when he spoke before Congress. Uh, A.T. Jones argued that it is not the job of Congress to impose a certain moral worldview on society, and by that he meant you can't impose Sunday laws. Kameny argued before Congress and in the civil rights movement with the law cases that he pursued that it is not the job of Congress to impose a religious worldview. It is the job of Congress to uplift the civil rights of every person that lives within these borders. We would agree with him to a certain extent on that. But we reject the idea that is implicit within that that there is no moral framework and that Society must promote my happiness, which means I can do whatever I want, with whomever I want, whenever I want, however I want, with no moral judgment whatsoever or social consequences as a result. So the West has progressively abandoned scripture in the last 40 years and become ever more secular. And that parallels the growth of the gay rights movement in the West, which has advanced culturally, socially, politically, and legally. And so in our brave new society that we see happening in front of our eyes, to be seen as a good person means being a vocal ally for certain minority groups. So in critical race theory or even critical theory and social justice war ideology, there is a hierarchy. At the top of the hierarchy, there are the oppressors guilty of all evil in human history, white, heterosexual, cisgender males. That's me. I'm guilty of all the evil of human history. I'm born guilty. In my mother's womb, I'm guilty because of the color of my skin. But the only way that I can, and everybody under me, there's a hierarchy of oppression with Muslims at the bottom and transgenders, and, and then there's certain differentiations before you get to the head, white heterosexual cisgender males like me. But then how do I escape that guilt? I escape that guilt by becoming an ally of one of these other groups. I, I divert the blame from myself. That's why the, you see people talking about allyship now. If I become an ally of one of those other groups and stand up for them, i.e. social justice warrior, I'm absolved of all guilt for being born white, heterosexual, cisgender, male. You follow this? So which is why many of the social justice warriors are white, middle-class college kids. They're absolving themselves of their ideological guilt, and there is no forgiveness possible within the critical theory worldview. Forgiveness does not exist as a mechanism. So in our brave new secular culture, to be seen as a good person means you have become a vocal ally and everybody in America is rushing to become an ally right now. So if sexual orientation, as per the Equality Act, cannot be challenged or discriminated against anyway, nor gender identity, and we won't talk about that today, but that's another whole discussion, if the basic premise of the gay rights movement is that governments could not and shall not legislate for any version of morality on society, then it's an inevitable fact that we will have to accept paedophilia and incest and zoophilia and necrophilia and all the rest of it as being normal and celebrated within our society. With the inevitable carnage in family life and personal wellness that that's going to bring along with it. And you say, oh, Pastor Vine, you're exaggerating this. No, I'm not. I follow this very closely. I read a lot of stuff in this area. There's now a lawsuit in New York State where one parent is suing for the right to marry their same-sex offspring. This case is now pending. The press won't tell you whether it's father and son or mother and daughter. All they will tell you is that conception is not possible in this relationship. Now, why is that case going to succeed? Logically, it should. If you accept the premise of Obergefell versus Hodges, as President Obama says, you can love who you love, then there is no reason why, and under the Equality Act, why a father cannot marry his son. That's their 
genetic sexual attraction, that's their sexual orientation, and that must be a protected class now. So what happens in America where you have inheritance tax? Oh, oh, oh. Just think. You want to avoid inheritance tax? Guess what you do? Marry your son just before you die. If that case goes ahead in New York, and it may well do, you marry your same-sex offspring just before you die. They become your spouse. When you die, they don't pay inheritance tax. So marriage becomes a tax avoidance or tax reduction strategy rather than being the place where God has given us to raise a family. So that's just one. There are many other unforeseen consequences that are going to take place as we go down this path. But this is the path that we're going as America. And I want to emphasize that, in, that for many, many years, people of the LGBT, LGB community, I'll focus on that for a minute, they face violence and discrimination and bigotry in our nation. That should never have happened. They should never have happened. Nobody should be beaten up for who, what they feel like. Nobody should be persecuted for what they feel like. So that should not happen. That should never have happened. And that was a shameful thing in our nation. However, that does not mean you go to the other extreme and say that there is to be no moral framework in society and anybody who upholds a moral framework is now the bigot. Anybody who says there is such a thing as morality is now viewed as the bigot because we are holding back other people from their pursuit of happiness, of unrestrained happiness. This is happening in literary deconstructionist circles, which is where the transgender movement comes from, the idea that I can be who I want to be. And uh, those who insist that language has meaning, that means you say that a man has a definition and a woman has a definition in linguistic terms, those definitions, in defining what a man and a woman is, you're actually stopping me from being who I really want to be. And therefore, we have to get rid of those definitions in literary deconstructionism in order for me to find full happiness. So we're essentially looking at a, um, profound changes happening very fast in American society. Um, Jeffrey Dahmer understood this very well. You know Jeffrey Dahmer? Because his sexual orientation was, you know... Mm, cannibalism ultimately but he, he gave an interview before he died and you can see a copy of this I think it's still up on YouTube he gave an interview before he died he was not this raving monster he was a guy who understood the philosophical implications of what he was doing he would sleep with young guys in the Milwaukee area then he'd kill them slice and dice and put them in his fridge and fry them up later and you don't hear that much in church do you but it's what happened and this is what he said. He says, I always believe the lie that the theory of evolution is truth. That we all came from the slime, that when we die, that is it. If a person does not believe there is a God that we are accountable to, then what's the point of trying to modify your behavior to keep it within acceptable ranges? It's a great point. He argued that if morality is just a social construct and there's nothing absolute about morality... Morality is kind of like a bell curve. What's to stop the bell curve shifting this way so I can start eating my lovers? If there's no absolute external morality, why can't I eat the boys I've just slept with? Why can't I? And the answer is, there is no answer why you can't do it. Because if there is no external morality that says, thou shalt not kill, then you can kill. And we in America not just have fostered this kind of culture, but we've also fostered a culture of death in, our Americans, in America in so many ways. People see a gruesome death at the movies, and they laugh. Don't they? Yeah. We have a culture that celebrates death and has little regard for the sanctity of human life in all kinds of ways. 
So we are changing fast as an American society. Without the biblical worldview, there is no longer sin per se, and the only remaining sin is for Christians to impose their bigoted biblical worldview and moral framework on others. That means we are holding back other people's happiness by imposing a, a, a framework of morality on society. But I would say today that no society has ever survived without a, in a popular culture that refuses all moral restraint. Maybe the last culture that did it was the French Revolution, and that society collapsed for about two or three years before they decided, hey, we need God back again in our society. Without a revealed morality, rather than an explored morality, without, and without a revealed morality that, protect, that places protections of holiness on personal behavior, on personal attitudes and social mores, our society will inevitably degrade to the point of collapse at immense human cost. That is where we're going right now in America. So as Christians, as Jesus wept over Jerusalem, knowing that destruction was coming to it, we weep over our nation, knowing that it is hurtling towards destruction. We don't weep in anger. We don't point the finger. We weep in anger because our nation is hurtling towards willful self-destruction and civilizational suicide. And there will be a profound personal cost to be paid by everybody in our nation because of the collapse that is going to come as we turn our back on revealed morality and say that everybody is free to do exactly what they want, when they want, with whomever they want, at whatever personal cost. But that is where we are as a society. So I guess the end of the day... Jesus never taught us to hate anybody. Even if we profoundly disagree with other people, we're still called to love them as Jesus first loved us. Because we are ultimately morally unlovable ourselves. We're no better than anybody else. We're all sinners in need of a savior. I need a savior, and you need a savior. So let's walk to the new Jerusalem together. We're not called to hate or point the finger or to despise or denigrate or degrade in any way, shape or form. And I want to encourage you today, do not ever do that kind of behavior. That could be your grandson, could be your nephew, could be your own daughter or son. We want all people to be saved and to receive the wholeness and healing that only God can bring. So love your children, love your neighbor, love those in the LGBTQ movement and recognize that Jesus died for them as much as dying for you. They're as precious to God as you are. They're as precious to you as, anybody, as to God as anybody else. And therefore, we cannot sit in judgment on people, but we can weep and we can beg for God to change hearts that they may be saved and restored to the likeness of God that they originally created. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.